G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, the only national program focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. Stick Together is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and brought to you on your local community radio station. Today's program could be called Melbourne-centric, but the issues we are dealing with are the same Australia-wide. The question we are looking at is who decides what our lived environments, our cities, should be like. And do working people have a choice about them? Or is it all about big money, developers and the expression of power through government policy? And what are the consequences if working people and others who are not part of the power elites don't get a say when it comes to where they live? In two of the major cities of Australia, Melbourne and Sydney, the first time there was any inkling that anyone other than the government or developers had anything to say about the face of their cities was markedly in the 1970s when unions, the CFMEU, joined with community groups to enforce green bans on places like the Rocks and Centennial Park in Sydney and Victoria Market and the City Bars in Melbourne, to name a few. In a new film by Gus Berger, The Lost City of Melbourne, the wild days of demolition of Melbourne's Victorian past is documented when the movers and shakers in the financial sphere responded to a sense of hickdom when the world arrived in Melbourne for the Olympic Games in 1956. The push was on to become modern, which meant skyscrapers and erasing the past. From this momentous attack on urban landscape came the community pushback to save some of what people felt were landmarks of their social existence. Sick Together went down to a media event on Monday outside the Curtin Hotel to mark the preliminary stages of placing this pub on the Heritage Register of Significant Buildings. The curtain sits across the road from the oldest trades hall in the world. Yes, the world. And this local watering hole is a landmark of working class struggle. Sold by the owners to an international overseas consortium, despite being offered a higher price from the trades hall, who have a fancy to build another high-rise apartment block on the embers of past glories. But the campaign to save that history is on. I spoke to Felicity Watson, Advocacy Manager at the National Trust of Australia, Victoria. Now, it is quite significant that um, the uh, pub, which is a working class uh, piece of history, has been uh, put forward as a socially important uh, building to be saved. Can you talk to that? Yeah, absolutely. That is a really significant um, reason why this pub has been recognised. Its role in the trade union movement, the labour movement, uh, over a period of over 160 years. And it's really important for us to recognise those stories from our history. And one of the really interesting things about the curtain is that it's part of this really, um, really important labour 
uh, and trade union precinct with trades hall across the road, the eight hours monument um, down the road as well. And altogether, those places tell a really important story about our working class history and um, the history of the trade union movement in Victoria and even Australia. Yeah, and also uh, the other significant thing, of course, is that it's not just the exterior, it's not a fadism that we're going to create, it's actually a curation of the interior. That's right. So the recommendation recommends protecting the parts of the interior that contribute to its cultural significance. So things like the bar and the arrangement of the rooms downstairs and upstairs. So that means that those significant elements would need to be considered as part of any redevelopment. And it's really important because people are so used to seeing buildings that are um, protected by heritage protections, but then only the facade is saved and the, you know, the use of facadism in developments all across Melbourne has been a terrible blight on the city, not only visually, but culturally as well. And so we think that this announcement and this recommendation puts forward a really strong message about the importance of those cultural spaces and cultural uses. Now, we're seeing, because of this announcement, that it's a step-by-step process that's required in order to make legislation protect buildings of significance. That's right. It is a very long and detailed process, and there are lots of steps along the way. Um, One of the benefits of that, that lengthy process is that it's very rigorous and it's really based on research and it's evidence-based. So in making their recommendation, Heritage Victoria have undertaken a lot of research. Uh, The National Trust and the Victorian Trades Hall Council have also undertaken a lot of research. And so now all of that is going to be tested as part of this process um, where people can make submissions and potentially uh, there will be a hearing to consider those submissions. Um, but what that ensures is that there's a lot of rigour in the process and that everybody gets uh, to have a say. And I know that uh, part of the process of protecting heritage uh, when it comes to redevelopments has been the inclusion of uh, archaeological digs, for example, uh, which is fascinating. It happened down near uh, Young and Jackson's when they were putting in the uh, uh, part of the Metro Tunnel, that sort of stuff. Uh, what kind of people would be involved in curating the interior or working with any developer? Yeah, so archaeology is protected in Victoria under the Heritage Act, which means that if you um, redevelop a site, um, you need to assess whether it's likely to have archaeological value. Uh, and if it does, uh, there needs to be a process of examining the site and um, undertaking a dig or looking at what is significant. And there are lots of really um, interesting digs that have happened in the CBD recently, as you say, connected to development and also public transport projects. Um, In the case of the curtain, that would only be sort of triggered or looked at if the building was going to be demolished um, and totally redeveloped, which in this case we hope that will never happen. Um, So what will happen um, with the interiors is that that will be kind of looked at as part of the the Heritage Council's um, assessment of the current recommendation and anything that's really significant that needs to stay um, in the hotel. Like the counters. uh, Yeah, exactly. will be identified as part of the heritage listing. Um, But, yeah, there may be also um, 
items like um, you know a portrait of John Curtin there might be things that are associated with the pub that are significant to recognize as well so there's an opportunity to look at, at that as well um, but the heritage listing doesn't provide total protection and control over every aspect of the interior so um, it's the way that it's sort of curated in and um, its stories told internally is really up to the owner and the manager of the building. And so what kind of professional skills, what sort of person would that be? Yeah, well, it depends what they want to do. For example, um, if um, for a lot of historic buildings that get redeveloped, something that um, is required is a kind of storytelling program uh, to, to communicate the history of the place and its significance um, and that might be undertaken by a historian a professional historian or a heritage consultant who would work with the owners um, and the people who have connections to the place like trades hall and um, and the union movement to tell those stories so there is a lot of potential for that but it's also a very up in the air as to what's going to happen in the future you're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We're looking at what role the community and working people play in advocating for the places they live in against the push by government policy and developers' money for what is dubbed progress. One of the most resounding wins for community over other forces in recent history has been the defeat of the East-West Link, a large toll road cutting across inner-city Melbourne suburbs, including cuts through Melbourne Cemetery and Royal Park public open space. The community fight back in 2013-14 to 14 was so significant it toppled the Liberal government. In his recent book, The Making and Unmaking of the East-West Link, James C. Murphy interrogates the power of the government, the bureaucracy and the community in this very public stouch. Here is an excerpt from an interview with James about how the public won over the power elites. I wanted to sort of walk through the saga of East-West Link from three different directions and and down there on the street and in the courts and at the ballot box is sort of one one walkthrough that I do of it. But I, I try to look at a couple of others as well. I, I follow uh, the making of East West Link through the Premier's office, bureaucracy, and kind of with all the different vested interests and lobbyists sort of pushing for these projects and stuff like that. Um, and then to watch how all of their best efforts to get that project realised were undone. Uh, and and by people who were picketing and people who were bringing court cases and all the rest of it. So, so my approach, yeah, was to to take it on from three different perspectives, and to use that as a test for you know which forces are most important in uh, in our infrastructure in Melbourne. You're right. I had time to try out a few different theories of how the political system works, how we make decisions in Australia, uh, which players are important in the policy making process. And I got to try out, you know, the theory that leaders are uh, kind of in control of the process if they have certain power resources to exercise. And I could kind of test that out on this case with the Premier's Napstein and Bailey, whether they were in control of the policy-making process when East West Link sort of first got up. 
Um, and then I could I could test out theories of bureaucracy and and where their power comes from and how they sort of control the agenda for politicians. Even if even if a, even if pr- the premiers would rather not build a big fat road project like East West Link, maybe there's a roads bureaucracy that is all powerful that convinces them to build it anyway. Uh, and yeah, finally I got to test out different theories of how people from outside the halls of power, people down on the street or on the picket line or in the courts or or campaigning at the ballot box, how they can take control of a of a project like this and and sort of turn the tables on the government and 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 change the outcome. And I got to test all of those and it was it was good fun. Yeah. Yeah, well, the timing and the theater of it because it was very theatrical, wasn't it? Absolutely. And there were, like, the, the kind of campaign in front of the media was, I argue, very important to changing perspectives and to changing who felt that they had a stake in the issue. Uh, the framing of these questions matters a lot. And I argued kind of in the book that, that I thought that um, some of the campaigning against the project um, sort of created a, a, a counter frame uh, certainly the pickets, I think, helped in changing the frame from being about what kind of project is the right project for Melbourne to being about social licence. And I thought that was a really important shift because it gave a lot of people, you know, living in the inner north of Melbourne, a stake because they are the community and they got to say, well, if it is up to me and it's about social licence, I'm not sure I, I'm ready to give licence to this project. So that that changed things, and it made a lot of, a lot of people feel like they had a stake, uh, which is up to yeah, change, yeah, change yeah. the table. Uh, yeah, it did because uh, the business about no trains and uh, 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 and train no car, you know no roads but trains, but also the uh, there was a lot of effort went into bringing that message to the outer suburbs as well that it wasn't just an inner city, uh, you know, latte sipping yeah. set. That it was influencing. I mean, there were there's. I mean, it was such a lot of things. Like uh, even down to the fact that they, uh, the government, uh, was going to use all the infrastructure funds on this one project, and so all the rural people didn't get anything. You know, like there was a lot of work done to do that reframing. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, um, and there was campaigning. At, you're right. The campaigning out in the burbs was important, and even in the region. And I think, I think. As a as kind of a piece of political craft, East West Link was poorly crafted because it put all the eggs in one basket. Even even in terms of like pol- like savvy politics, it's not all that savvy because yeah, it's one big fat project in the middle of the city, and the the Liberal government at the time was asking all communities to imagine themselves benefited by that, and that was that was a hard sell, especially when other other kind of parties at the twenty fourteen election were saying we're going to. You know, if it's Labor, we're going to get rid of level crossing removals, you know, and, and people could, everyone could imagine that it was their level crossing or other parties, you know, are saying we're going to do all these other different projects out in the regions or in the suburbs, um, which allowed people to kind of imagine them, their lives improved in a way that East West Link kind of struggled to sell. Yeah, it was so it was so undemocratic. Uh, I know your book is one book, but uh, I do remember at the time the uh, line in the sand, the aggression coming from the big end of town. You know, at certain events, I remember people being uh, abused in no, uncert- no uncertain terms for picketing um, a large. There was this big dinner at one of the. Uh, 
expensive hotels where a whole yeah. lot of the bureaucrats as well as the uh, uh, shakers and movers in um, the private world, uh, mm. you know, the abuse that was, you know, like you're, you're just uh, dirt on the footpath. How dare you question us? It was, it was classic. It was absolutely yeah. classic. And I, and I think it springs from a sense of, of like, that they own the process and that, yeah. the, and that and the, and the, they're the right decision makers, right? And one of the things that you get in a battle like this is always uh, a push by the uh, advocates for change for to expand the conflict and to expand participation in the, in the process. And the people who are quite happy with the status quo, with the way that we usually make big infrastructure decisions, they try to close that down and to say that anyone trying to come into this decision-making process from the outside are sort of, you know, carpetbaggers or they're, they're you know, they're illegitimate in some regard. Mm. And, and they'll, they'll be really resistant to, to people trying to assert a level of control over these decisions. Um, and I think we saw plenty of that. You know, the government at the time, they passed, I'm sure people recall, that they yeah. passed these quite draconian anti-protest laws and it was kind of not a secret that a big chunk of the reason why were the pickets uh, against the yeah. West Wing. Yeah, yeah. So, that, that's yeah. where all the uh, men in pyjamas <laughs> started to, uh, uh, you know, the uh, critical incident, yes. whatever they're called. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the wallopers were sent in to, to West Garth Street and to, and to, like, sleepy Collingwood and taken off you know, other other um, jobs to uh, police the pickets in this de- quite desperate attempt to reassert control over the, the kind of geotechnical drilling in the, in the inner north. And it, it, it sort of didn't go all that well. Um, and I, I've sort of argued that the pickets, I think they had a small material impact on the kind of uh, preparatory works for the project, but had a very large kind of framing and media impact. Mm, and that that, I think was, so that too. was the big contribution yeah. um, in changing minds. Yeah. But 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 the thing about that was so impressive, besides the tactic there was obviously tactical chess playing going on. But also the other thing that was fascinating was how many people who had so many skills applied themselves across the board, so the VCAT stuff, the le- the legal stuff. the There were a whole lot of people who, who were older people who were retired but who had absolutely sharp, razor-sharp Im- uh, uh, vision into the bureaucracies and they applied think, yeah. their skills. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it was, it was quite an experienced um, kind of cohort of, of activists. And often, you know, they, they weren't always coordinated they weren't always doing no like, yeah. you know like they weren't always singing from the same they just uh, applied key. themselves go on sorry they, uh, they just applied themselves to the task yeah that's right yeah yeah and and um i think i think all of that collective experience across across all of those various um protesters and activists and stuff like that i think it paid off in in this case and it helped i think as well that it was at this polarising project on an environmental level and you had a lot of people who were experienced from the environment movement decide to make East West Wink their big, their big kind of target for, for 2013, 2014. And so, yeah, there was a lot of collective experience uh, in the nominal room, right? They weren't in one room together, but, um, but they were all working towards, towards the same end of destroying the project. And, that, yeah, that was successful. 
You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. To finish off our look at who decides the face of the places we live, we look at why it is important to fight for livable cities. This is a piece from a recent talk given by Steph Price at Marxism 2022. She was specifically looking at the price paid by working people when developers and governments fail to care about the people who buy their dream homes in the green fields developments and fail to use the copious amounts of research into what makes for a happy and bright future for us all not just the wealthy. You have the capitalists that build skyscrapers, which are totally different and opposed to the capitalists that build low-rise housing estates. Their interests are largely opposed and they're often battling with each other. You have the capitalists that build roads, you have other ones that toll the roads, you have capitalists that run the public transport and there's obviously different intersections of interest there. You've got the businesses in the cities, the businesses in the suburbs, you've got the landowners and the, the people that run their business in the shopping centre. So a whole array of different interests that mean that urban development under capitalism is necessarily chaotic. It's also thoroughly irrational, considered against even the most basic measures of human need, to say nothing of the possibility that we might build our environment in such a way that elevates our dignity. Of course, nowhere is the sheer irrationality more evident than in considering how the interests that determine what happens in our cities have responded to the climate crisis. So think about this. Up and down the coasts of Australia, right now, houses, absolutely brand new houses, are still being built in areas that all sensible science says will be inundated by a rising sea by the end of this century. And well before that, vulnerable to huge storm surges. A group of researchers recently bravely asked a group of developers and property investors to anonymously explain how this could possibly be. Their answers were unsurprising, but disturbingly candid. This is one um, such um, champion. The change, and the change presumably being catastrophic sea level rises, isn't going to come through now or in the next two, three, four, or five years. Long-term thinking. It's going to come through gradually over the next 50 to 100 years. And if that's the case, do I really need to care? I mean, it's terribly selfish thing to say, so self-awareness. Um, but as a property owner, do I need to care? If you look at Sydney, huge swathes of its urban growth area are on floodplains. And the current rule is it's just fine for developers to plant estates on those areas that are supposed to flood the sort of mega floods, one in every hundred years. These are the very same areas that have had two such floods in the last five years. And the New South Wales government just scrapped a proposed, so not even introduced, but scrapped a proposed requirement that developers prepare hazard risk profiles for the new estates in areas that could be subject to flood and fires. And the developers pushed back hard and it's been withdrawn on the basis that it undermined the economics of delivering housing. So in Melbourne, which is the fastest growing of all of Australia's cities, most of the growth is happening on the fringes, where about 100,000 people settle every year. The urban boundary has been expanded three times in the last 20 years, and two of those times were by a Labor government. And it's always at the behest of the developers and landowners who reap huge windfall profits when native grasslands and farmland is rezoned residential. And in most cases, it's as if the housing estates put there have been built as some sort of dark experiment, like a Black Mirror episode, about how could we design new housing estates so that we really just push this climate change thing up a notch 
And at the same yeah. time, what if we made it that the people that we put in those estates feel the effects the worst and have the least ability to mitigate? So if you're going to carry out such a sick experiment, you would build a patchwork of disconnected planned communities well beyond the public transport network with little in the way of jobs, shops, hospitals or any community infrastructure at all. See, right now, if you live on the urban fringe, less than 5% of jobs are accessible to you within 60 minutes on public transport. And a similar proportion are accessible by 30 minutes if you have a car. So what it means is if you have a job, you will be driving and you will be driving for a long time to get there. And because the estates are designed usually with only a couple of ways in or out, the congestion that you experience probably starts almost from the, the second you leave your driveway. You cannot do any of the things that you need to do to sustain yourself or your family without a car. And then there's the houses themselves. So prices for the houses are going up, but the blocks themselves are getting smaller. So the developers can carve out more from each land parcel. And if you look at a sort of um, heat map, you know, people who do infographic, infographic maps about what the city looks like, the, there's a sort of, you know, an inner ring of inner suburbs that are sort of smaller blocks and it widens out into the sort of middle ring, but it shrinks right back in in the, the urban growth areas. So, you know, much more closely aligned to the sort of inner, the, the Northcote type suburbs, far, far um, out into the grasslands. But at the same time, the houses are getting bigger which means that the house takes up most of the block, leaving not much room for a backyard. And the rates of imperviousness in some of these areas is as high as 90%. And imperviousness um, basically means a hard surface that you know, water can't soak into. And, and hard surfaces on um, these housing estates are likely to be concrete and they trap the heat and, and release it back out increasing the temperature in these areas significantly by many degrees often. And it will only get worse over time. Canopy tree cover can help, but tiny backyards can't accommodate uh, big trees and the developers are not putting them in the streets, nor often are they building the parks that they promise uh, in their ads. If you live on one of these estates, you will absolutely need an air conditioner just to be able to inhabit uh, your house. But the exacerbation of the heat island effect caused by the imperviousness means that at times it will be too hot for your air conditioner to work. So who knew it can actually get too hot for air conditioners to work and it's not that far beyond the sort of temperatures that we will see regularly in the not too distant future. So over 48 degrees apparently air conditioners will struggle to work. And in addition, because they're building the houses gutter to gutter, there's no room around the sides of them um, for the air circulation that air conditioners need. It sounds a bit like a sort of strange lesson in weird things you sort of didn't want to know, but this is actually, to the extent there's any growth in Melbourne, this is what it looks like, um, and this is what we're setting the world and people up for. So heat, heat kills more people in Australia than any natural disaster, and actually most um, heat-related heat deaths happen in Victoria. That's it from Stick Together this week. You can catch up with the show at 3cr.org.au or where you get your favourite podcasts. Catch us at sticktogether at 3cr.org.au. I'm Annie McLaughlin. Join the Stick Together team next week for more workers' news. And remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. Stay safe and stick together. Behind the-
automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, Full house. 